Hello and welcome to the Pint Talks podcast, where two old friends chat about the world over a pint. Let's talk autonomous vehicles. Should self-driving cars sell passenger data? How do we entertain people on long rides? And are autonomous vehicles good for the environment? It's all in this episode of Pine Talks. Well, hi everyone. So today we're going to talk about cars. Well, it's cars that drive themselves. Autonomous vehicles. I guess that's how they call them these days, huh? Autonomous vehicles. Sounds sounds kind of fancier. Well, that explains what autonomous vehicles are. I guess so. They are pretty fancy. They used to look pretty crazy. So the first prototypes that I saw were generally from Google and other companies. Looked like a kind of like a spaceship or Jetsons type of cars. But now with you know Tesla and others kind of like starting to put those autopilots or those type of technologies in cars, it's starting to look more normal. Mm. More real. Yeah. yeah. They're starting to look more like cars. Yeah, it's kind of like makes me take them a little more seriously now and, and start seeing them as a kind of like a thing that's potentially upon us. Yeah. Well, overall, I think it'd be worthwhile just because if you listen to different sources in the uh, in the literature about autonomous vehicles, they refer to levels. So maybe we should start with what levels and how people classify autonomous vehicles. Okay, sure. Go ahead. Classify them for us. <laughs> okay, we have six levels of autonomous vehicles, which are from zero to five. And level zero of autonomous vehicles is no automation. So that's your regular car. Then increasing levels of automation is from one to five. So level one is you have a little bit of, of um, assistance. So cruise control, for example. And some cars have this kind of cruise control where it can see the car in front of you, so it just maintains distance from it. The number two is partial and uh, partial automation. Number three is conditional automation, so you have a driver, but uh, they don't necessarily need to do anything. And a lot of the what Tesla's done with oh, you still have to be there, but your car can kind of drive itself pretty much. That's that's sort of level three of automation. Level four is high automation where you don't necessarily even need a driver at all. And level five is then full automation. So that's the car can do everything on its own. So that's that. So so do you know what's the current, uh, I guess you mentioned a little bit, but like what's the current uh, level that we're seeing from uh, Tesla and other manufacturers? I know a few years ago it was really level three and then Level four was kind of in development. Now I keep hearing about level five. Uh, I think Musk mentioned recently, Elon Musk mentioned about them being very close to, to level five in Tesla. Have you heard uh, more details? Slightly. The problem with level three, to my understanding, and I got this from several debates, they were all going to level three and they were progressing from level one, two, three, you know, in order. But the problem with level three is that if you have a driver, and they're just sitting there for an hour or two, just looking at the road, they tend to doze off or just stop paying attention. So they become more of a hindrance than really a help to the car because you can't have a human sitting there for hours at a time not doing anything and just paying attention to the road but not actually controlling anything. 
and there were problems with that like you might have heard a story of oh the, this person was sitting in a tesla or in another company's car autonomous vehicles and they fell asleep and there were that's why from what i understand now a lot of companies are switching to trying to go more to level four or five to remove that problem because if you need a driver that is just sitting there and that driver falls asleep obviously that can be more dangerous oh sure i mean they're, they're generally trying to go towards level five right like not just for that purpose but just they've always been trying to get to that level five but it just takes them a lot of time and a lot of miles yeah yeah yeah, I mean, there was definitely a lot of controversies with that. I think I remember someone, uh, I believe it was someone watching Harry Potter or something in a Tesla and crashed. But can you blame them, really? I mean, if, if the car drives itself, of course, they tell you, you know, it's you've been warned not to take your hands off. But I, I consider it a little bit uh, evil, in a sense. It's almost like, yeah, we told you to hold your hands on the steering wheel at, at all times, but not really drive. Like, that's kind of a te very tempting thing for you to to actually violate because if I'm anyways holding my hands on a steering wheel, wouldn't I just drive? Like it, it sounds like very easy for someone to slip and actually violate that. So I, I thought it was a little bit shady that they, they let people drive at level three. I don't even think about violation, but more so you'll die of boredom because realistically, okay, you can maybe keep your attention focused there if you're doing nothing for 10, 15 minutes. But after 15 minutes, I mean, what? your mind will start wondering, you're going to start, you know, oh, let me just check my phone real quick. You're going to start testing the boundaries of paying attention. Because After realistically... five seconds, five seconds, my mind will start wondering. <laughs> yeah, so realistically, I think it was just maybe poor thinking on their part that that can happen. So because... It was a little controversial, right? Because some people are saying that what they're doing uh, meaning some of their competitors were saying that, um, particularly in the Tesla case, is that they're treating it like a like a software problem where software or, or software product where, you know, tech and software companies, I work in one of those, they, they tend to release something and usually it gets better over time, but it's okay to release it kind of like quick and quick and dirty because it, that's the nature of software. You can just change it. But, but this is kind of pretty dangerous to do. You release it at level three and then, of course, one of the main reasons why they're releasing at level three is because I think it's kind of a common sense that they need those miles to be racked up because the more miles you can rack up, the more you can learn. And it's literally a machine learning algorithm in this complex neural networks to improve the system, which I understand, obviously, they need to they need those miles. But but some, some other competitors and some critics were saying how they were doing that despite the fact that they're potentially risking people's lives. Can just you, so that they can improve their product. Can you just in briefly talk about how miles driven are related to this, to the software and developing the software? Sure, yeah. So, so the, in order for these cars to be autonomous, they use a combination of sensors and, and algorithms. And a big piece, particularly to Tesla, but I think to all of them, is computer vision, where you use a, a system of cameras to actually just kind of like mimic the human's eye and, and see what's around you and detect objects and detect the lanes and detect, you know, where the car should be going. In order for that system to work properly, it, it needs to be, you can't just kind of like follow traditional programming where you just kind of like programming some logic and it just works. It is so complicated that you need to develop these, uh, these complex neural networks or machine learning models that are basically programs that start like babies and then 
if you feed them more data, they, they keep learning from that and they get stronger and better. So what we're seeing with these cars is that they actually need billion, billions of miles on the road with all this footage that they can track and all these experiences that they go through to actually get better and better and to actually become ultimately become great at, at driving. So so yeah, that, that's why these cars, th there's an incentive to have the cars on the road, even if they're not fully ready or if they're not fully mature. Yeah, I. So to paraphrase what you you're saying in a way, is just that driving is so complicated that you cannot really foresee every possibility. So they need the cars to encounter as many possibilities as possible, and and make a decision as to how what needs to be done, and then learn driving much as a much as a person would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Yeah. If they're so complicated and, and obviously very costly to develop, because if you have several companies doing this and they're allocating probably some of their best people on it, why do you think they're being developed? Like, what is the benefit of self-driving or autonomous vehicles? So that's a good point. Uh, th there's a lot of a lot of potential benefits, and, and I would say a lot of them are kind of like an asterisk right now that that we don't know exactly what the full impacts will be, but. Um, I think we can we can dive into them. So one of them is the sort of the safety aspect of it. Roads are one of the top killers of, of humans. Car crashes are terrible. All these people are dying every year. Forget what the numbers were recently, but essentially one of the one of the top killers of, of people. And so we wanna we wanna make them safer. So, so just to just to provide that number, total fatalities 2016 in terms of roads accidents was over 1.3 million people worldwide. And if we go for some countries, let me just, this information is available on Wikipedia, for example, but also on various other places. In the United States, we're talking about 40,000 in 2018. Right. In, yeah, in, in 2018. In South Korea, for example, it's about 3,300. Russia is 27,000. In India, so, it's in India, it's two hundred thousand, two hundred and seven thousand five hundred fifty-one. That's quite a lot. So it's pretty bad, pretty bad numbers. I mean, forty thousand people in the United States dead. Uh, if we could prevent that, obviously, that's why we have all these laws and regulations, and we're trying to make cars safe for all these years. And, and so that's one of the arguments for them that one day those cars could potentially be uh, not just as safe as humans, but potentially be ten times safer be extremely safe uh, in a world where cars are just driving. There's a lot of issues with humans driving uh, because, you know, someone might fall asleep, like you were saying, or someone might be drunk or someone might be inexperienced or just like wander, their mind wanders off and they make a mistake. So humans make mistakes all the time, which is, which is normal. It's human nature. Uh, all machines might be, might get much, much better at it. So I think the, the safety argument is probably the, the biggest one for autonomous vehicles. Yeah, whenever you hear and people talk about the pros about autonomous vehicles, I do think that the safety argument is the one that gets brought up the most. I suppose another one is the improvement of traffic and the improvement of efficiency of traffic. And there's various theories about why traffic happens, but I think the most accepted one is that you have somebody at the front driving sort of slowly and then the person behind him drives, drives a little bit slower and slower and slower and slower. So if you have a lot of cars, you would naturally get this congestion 
uh, in locations where at some point traffic is just stopped because there's so many layers down that you have no movement. That problem would not be there with autonomous vehicles because they can sort of talk to each other and they can uh, move very efficiently. Well, so that's an interesting question, I guess, and it depends on how they how they build them. Like, would they be able to talk to each other or, or, or not? Uh, would would the manufacturers or the OEMs kind of restrict their cars to only talk to their cars, or would there be an open protocol or standard? These are some of the, the big questions of, of uh, developing these networks of autonomous vehicles, I guess. I suppose this could also be a question about safety in a way as well, because if you link every car in some way to every other car, is it possible for that link to be hacked or used to hack a specific car? I think, I think the rule is uh, every time you have software, it can be hacked, right? I, I don't think if something is, especially since they're all connected, I mean, already these I don't want to call them prototypes, but the current vehicles with certain degrees of automation, I mean, they're very connected. That's part of why the whole thing is getting better and better because they keep sending the data over to the cloud for the algorithms to keep learning. So these are all connected to the internet. Uh, it's definitely possible. I think if you listen to some of the prominent speakers in the field, like Elon Musk, he would. I've heard him say multiple times where there's different layers of security on the car. So it might be possible to, to hack maybe turn the radio station on the car, but to actually hack the mechanism that moves the car to, to really, you know, kind of have that doomsday scenario where the car gets hacked and it kind of wanders off the road or something and kills someone. That would be extremely difficult, cl- close to impossible. It, it would be very different hacking one piece of the car than hacking another piece of the car. But I mean, I'm not sure if that means it's impossible. I doubt it's going to be impossible, but, but maybe it's going to be very low probability. Yeah, I think there was one case, if memory serves, and I, I just, when you said radio, and then you said uh, hacking, I remember, I think there was one case in which a car was hacked exactly through the radio. And I think, it, I'm not sure if it was a showcase or a real case. I don't think it was a big story because nothing specific happened. But I think there was one case where the radio was connected to to the system, to the computer system in such a way that they were able to get in. And obviously now that's that won't happen because people separate them. That's where those multiple levels might come from, actually. That's interesting. Uh, I haven't heard of such an exact case. I just can't give some example, I guess. But uh, I mean, I think it's on one hand, it's a real problem, right? How do we make vehicles secure? And um, what architecture do we employ for security? And on the other hand, how do we convince people that they're secure, that they cannot be hacked? I think that's part of it, too. How do you even demonstrate? Because I think a lot, a lot of the issues with autonomous vehicles would be, at some point, is, is people's trust in them, and and I think hacking is absolutely part of that. Yeah. Another positive that I heard about was about people with disabilities, and I think you have more information than that about that than me. So do you want to go into that for a minute? Uh, sure. Yeah. I I don't know if I have that much information. I just kind of mentioned uh, uh, this to Dylan before we started recording, as we we're kind of exchanging notes to, to see what we're going to talk about a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so it's just thinking about people with disabilities. They have the issue of needing a, a driver, potentially, for, for certain disabilities, uh, whether someone is, is blind or they have a navigational disability, uh, so that maybe they, they need a wheelchair and all. And so there's a potential for autonomous vehicles to, to help with, with certain problems like that. The most obvious example is, is the blind passenger that wouldn't need a driver anymore. 
And I think that could be incredibly empowering. If you have a car that drives itself, then clearly you don't have a need, you don't have that reliance on someone driving your places. That can be an amazing thing. I suppose something that would be maybe more applicable to more people, if you're drinking or taking another kind of mind-altering substance and then driving. So you're on a night out, you, you may be living in a more rural area and you need to drive for half an hour or 40 minutes to wherever you're going. And then to come back, you may, Uber and taxi and all those things may not be available or may be very costly. So in that case, if you have a driverless car, you can take it there and then take it back. So it gets a lot easier as well. So that's sort of a momentary reduction in ability, I suppose you can put it like that. Due to intoxication. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Th- that makes a lot of sense. Um, just like if you haven't had sleep for a while, um, you have driving fatigue, for example, you're required by law, I think, if, if you're particularly if you're a professional driver, there, there are certain limits where you can't drive beyond number of whatever number of hours there are. So that can also really help with that as well, where you, yeah, you're not fit to drive at the moment for a few hours, but maybe you take a nap and your car continues driving or your truck keeps moving yeah. forward. I also have, now when you talk about it, I also thinking I have friends who've moved, for example, from uh, one city to another, and they've driven for like 20 hours straight. And at the back of my mind, when I hear these stories, it's like, you cannot, it's not possible to really be safe. Like after hour five, you're sort of taking your life in your hands and other people's lives in your hands because you can't really, humans are not built in such a way that you can maintain nonstop attention, perfect attention for 20 hours. And driving yeah, is no kind way. of a, sorry? Yeah, there's no way. I think it would be, you, you might think you have control of the situation, but if a situation arises where you have to have a very quick reaction, I, I think you'll definitely be not at, not at your best at those types yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. And especially, and this goes back to also what we talked about, about level three uh, vehicles that here we, it's, it's almost a second that decides the difference between having an accident and not. So even that second is enough. And if you're not at 100%, I know I've had cases where I've had to stop and maybe take a 15, 20-minute break because I could feel myself that I'm maybe pushing on the gas a little bit too much or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Another big point that people talk about is the environmental one. I came into this podcast and I came into this prepara- the preparation of this podcast with a very clear, oh, autonomous vehicles definitely great for the environment for various reasons. And some people would say, well, they're great because you mightn't, you can, it, you'd, it would encourage ride sharing and it would encourage you to Uber or something like that. Like get a subscription to Uber and you don't need to have your own car. And it would also make traffic more uh, efficient. So you won't have all these five mile traffic jams but actually it seems that there is a big debate in terms of are autonomous vehicles going to be more ecologically uh, better ecologically and one of the points against it would be you have some added weight to the car with all the sensors all of the different computer uh, computational capability that, that car has to have another one is that you also need a good infrastructure of um, wireless internet like you said before you have connection to the cloud with that car. So that connection is not everywhere ubiquitous at the moment. We need to actually build it. And this is where 5G comes into the picture as well, that we're building this 5G capability, which can be used in part for autonomous vehicles. 
and that obviously costs a lot. Then the other thing is that there's a lot of parts to these cars, so that makes them a lot more expensive. It makes the repair of them more problematic because you can't have a random mechanic just open them up with all the computer parts and software parts in them at the moment. Those present questions ecologically as well. And the other question that, that I saw is that because you can have very easy transport from point A to point B, it could lead to people driving a lot more. That could be problematic. What do you mean it could lead to people driving more? Let's say that autonomous vehicles are cheap and you're using, you're subscribed to Uber, autonomous Uber, and you can pay very little to go from wherever you are, wherever you live to, let's say, to the shop, to just your closest supermarket. You might do that drive more often than if you either did not have a car, if the supermarket is within walking distance, or had to drive there. I see. So it encourages you to take rides because it's easier for you to do, do so. So it's yeah. kind of like a less less problems for you to take the ride. So you might end up doing it more. I see. Yeah, that's that's the argument. Yeah. Also, these are valid points. Um, I think some of these I personally don't consider to be as big as as others. Like for example, the the need for a constant internet or some sort of a network. So the whether it's five G or satellite or whatever it's going to be. I think the world is definitely rapidly moving in the direction towards having ubiquitous internet. That's one. You know, we are seeing those 5G networks um, being deployed now all over the place. We are seeing them grow. We are seeing these, I don't know, it's, is it thousands of satellites now? I think Elon Musk has another company or through SpaceX, he's doing uh, his space company. He's having this, I think he just even deployed several satellites today. Just this network of satellites to attempt to reach more areas with satellite internet. And so we're seeing a lot of innovation in that areas. I think that problem would probably be solved at some point. Also, I think it's important to make the distinction of the car needing internet uh, at all times versus the car needing internet sometimes. Um, the, those cars don't necessarily need internet to, to move. Uh, they need internet in order to send data back to their kind of like mothership so that they can, you know, and then to get over, over the air updates, but they don't necessarily need internet at all times. Now that depends on the technology they're using. Some of them are actually relying on uh, maps. And so unless those maps are downloaded, th that's actually a huge bottleneck in general for, for that technology that it requires maps, but, but some of them are not. And so you don't actually need internet at all times. So I, I don't know how big of a problem that's going to be in particular. Now, in terms of complexity of sensors and all these things they have, uh, yeah, that, that's definitely a cost. Um, I think uh, there's a debate right now even about, you know, what sensors to use and why use. The most, most controversial one is probably the LiDAR, uh, which is uh, trying to, no expert by any means, but just read a little bit about it, uh, trying to use essentially, it's kind of like, like radar with lasers. <laughs> so instead of radio waves, use lasers to, to get depth perception and to, to detect objects. So that one is a, about $10,000. I just read $10,000 or so sensor. Pretty expensive stuff to put on top of the car price uh, just to use for, for detection. So that's one of those potential bottlenecks. But some companies like Tesla has been like a vocal kind of opponent to using those LiDAR sensors. And they, they strictly rely on vision and, and radars. And so because and the reason why they cite is like partially the cost you know, uh, like you're saying, like adding that extra, extra, extra stuff. But but also, um, the prime of lidar is interesting. It's uh, it can't really tell from what I read. 
it can't tell the difference. You know, it's just a laser, right? So it can't really tell the difference between a plastic bag and a bump on the road or a cat. It, it just sees, you know, some some object that stops it. Well, if you rely more on vision, vision can actually really be close to the human eye, where you can actually detect what you're seeing exactly. Uh, if if you solve the vision problem, so equipment's there, quite quite controversial. I think I agree that that could be a problem environmentally. I mean, the more sensors you need, the more resources you need, the more complexity you create. There's all kinds of issues with that. But uh, it's interesting to see where where autonomous vehicles are going to go with that, and and which of these sensors and the equipment is actually going to remain when they reach uh, level five versus uh, what we have today. Yeah, especially, so I have two points, but one of, I'll address your LiDAR first. And it sounds to me like the LiDAR is sort of an in-between point because obviously vision, you would need several algorithms to be able to actually not only make the computer see the object, but also recognize what the object is. And I suppose a lot of companies, and again, we're not experts, we're just speculating, and a lot of companies may want to have a LiDAR as an in-between point that you can sort of recognize the item. You don't know what it is, but that's easier to do than having to see it and recognize it and, and so on. I suppose that would be the thinking behind the LiDAR. Yeah, so it's it's kind of um, some one school of thought, you know, believes in LiDAR long term. Uh, there's another school of thought, particularly Elon Musk has been very vocal in Tesla about this. I keep bringing him up because he's always in the news, as we all know, because uh, I just naturally hear about him all the time. Uh, yeah, he thinks it's a, it's kind of like a, a fake progress, where you're saying like, oh yeah, I can detect now, you know, how far objects are, great, you know, but that's actually kind of a fake progress because you're not really going to be able to do much more of that. It's that according to him, it's like lidar will never start seeing, <laughs> so you have to drop it and actually build your vision system. So it's almost like. Some companies are using it now. They're, yeah, like you're saying, kind of like in this short term, they're doing it. It's but like a crutch, basically. Yeah, it has limitations that will never change. Some of them. Some of them might. Yeah, it's kind of a controversial technology. Another another topic that I that is quite commonly talked about, about the environmental impact and, and actually to a degree, the societal impact of uh, autonomous vehicles is the death of public transport. And again, it goes to, well, if you have ride-sharing services and they're reasonably cheap, then you might just, they may just outcompete public transport. So why would a government invest in having a bus system and, and spending millions of dollars per year for running a bus system in a single city if you can just have a fleet of these autonomous pods that just move everywhere? Well, so I guess my question for that or thought is, why did the government owns those those autonomous vehicles in the fleet. I mean, they could own autonomous buses, uh, just like traditional current buses. Um, you could imagine the government or an organization providing transportation to people that can't afford it the same way they do today, except they won't be employing any drivers. It will be an autonomous situation. We are seeing some of what you're talking about with, with current ride-sharing actually already. With, with Uber and Lyft and, and some of these ride-sharing services where the the rides have gone down quite a bit for public transit in certain areas. I know that was the case a few years ago in Detroit. Uh, I was working on ride-sharing and underprivileged uh, populations there as part of a research project. And that, that was definitely one of the concerns they were seeing with, with such services that they were already taking away riders from the bus system, which was push, putting a financial strain on it. 
And for sure, right sharing can lead to problems with public transport. And it's sort of a vicious cycle where you have right sharing company comes in, even if it is partially government owned or, or there is some kind of a relationship with the government, like it is at the moment with, with public transports, which are usually private. And then public transport that is there at the moment, so that being subway or bus system atrophies because people don't use it. So there's no need for wasting public funds in it. And then as that atrophies, you get the use of the uh, ride-sharing platform more and more. And in a way, that can present several problems. And one of which is what we talked about environmentally, where you have more rides on individual vehicles and you have more, that creates more greenhouse gases. And a second one could be that those companies actually get a lot of power in the city. Because let's be... It, Yes, those can be government companies or government owned, but a lot of the cases, they probably won't be. I mean, if you look at the companies that are developing this technology, it is not government, right? It's Alphabet, which is the mother company of Google. It's Tesla. It's a lot of big private enterprises. So it's unlikely that those would be government. They would let themselves be regulated by the government a lot because their point of view is, well, I've already invested these millions or hundreds of millions or billion dollars in developing this technology, now you're putting reins on me and I can't make my money back. And the point is, to sum up briefly, is that if we have a fleet of self-driving cars or self-driving pods, you there's two schools of thought. And one says, one is more optimistic and says, well, that would be great because the environment would benefit. People would benefit because they would have access to door-to-door, -to -door, very, uh, very efficient transportation. And you may even reduce the number of cars that are made because not everybody needs to have a car and cars spend 90% of their life just sitting there. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is, well, sure, but that would give those companies which own these kinds of fleets a lot of power. And on top of that, they may not actually increase autonomy of people, they might decrease it because now you are dependent on somebody else. And what I was thinking about when I was listening to this debate is, for example, you get into a car and you say something that the other people in the car, if it's a ride sharing service and you're in there with other people, you say something that they consider inappropriate and you get banned from that service. If that service is the only one in your neighborhood, for example, then you being banned would mean you have limited ability to participate in society because you have very or reduced access to transportation so i think you have a few things there that i, I want to dive into separately the, the first one is the, the concept of sharing the ride um i think we will probably see models which will be with different price points where some people might choose to share their ride with someone else um maybe they go into an autonomous car and you know they're sharing rides uh, but you could also see people that don't necessarily share, they get a private ride, uh, but that's still pretty efficient in terms of the car drops you off and then right away picks up someone else from that same location. So you still have that continuation where the car is never actually driving by itself, but it is picking one person at a time, which I assume that'll be a more expensive option, almost certainly, uh, as opposed to even the more efficient one where you're sharing with others in the same ride. So. I guess my whole point is it's interesting to see what models would come out of this, what business models would be there, or do you share for, uh, you have a guaranteed 
to have the car for yourself, maybe for half the ride and then for the other half, who knows, depending on conditions and traffic. <laughs> there could yeah. be some interesting models. And the reason I understand, I'm sure some of you who are listening are thinking about, oh, well, you're just assuming that you won't own your car and you're just talking about a scenario where there's this ride sharing platform that we use. And the reason we're talking about this is because that's one of the major conversations happening around uh, around autonomous vehicles, that you will have the fleets of autonomous vehicles. And that's one of the things that people talk about to get the maximum benefit of this technology. So it's not a random conversation we are having. It's it's something that, that happens in the literature itself. Um, another aspect of also sharing of sure, Before you... Before. Yeah. Maybe make your point, make your point. And I also want to circle back into the whole being excluded from the services. So Yeah, um, and it, this sort of has something to do with it, actually. And I agree with you on the sen- in the sense that you will probably have different business models. And one of them, which would be the cheapest probably, is sharing with other people, the car with other people at the time that you're using it. And we can see that because of Uber, the way Uber does things, and that's their cheapest service. So it's not too much out there to assume that that would be a similar idea. And what some people from some of the debates I listened to, and a lot of the our sources you can find in the description, some of the debates I listened to, they talk about that people get very nervous when there is no driver because the driver is seen as sort of an authority figure and that they're going to protect you if one of the other passengers starts behaving in an inappropriate way. And that goes into another consideration for people, which is uh, safety. So what if you get into this vehicle and that vehicle is is moving at 60 miles an hour or 100 kilometers an hour and somebody starts doing something very inappropriate, be it physical or verbal? You can't really jump out. You can't really get out. Like, Do you have a button to stop the car? And even by the time the car stops, that might be too late. So what happens in terms of that? So there's an interesting question. I think you you could imagine or speculate around possibilities. Uh, It could be that the car itself tries to detect such behavior and um, and takes action or it could be kind of like a hybrid model where the car detects the initial action um, and then it sort of turns on a human observer remotely that kind of see what's happening like live connects to the car and the inside um, so but you could see a lot of these these type of things or, or it could be that the car does nothing and then you only see it sort of post accident you reveal the data and then you ban people but yeah in general i would say safety is is a it's kind of a that's been at the at the heart of this ride sharing where you have the the pool whether it's for your your own safety or you know there could be a theft there could be all kinds of uh, safety concerns with that it's definitely a valid point you had also something to say about uh, being limited to participate in society uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's going to be a, a big debate of. It's almost like that could become a right to ride. <laughs> you know, it's like our our civil rights. It's a strange thing, right? Because if if all the cars become these part of these fleets that people don't own, then who who decides who doesn't have that right anymore? Because uh, you know, having a car is crucial, right? Right now, and if we don't have cars, then in the future you could imagine. And that could be pretty far future, but you could imagine being part of, you know, being allowed to be on the fleet to be kind of like a huge, uh, huge, huge deal. 
I think in more immediate future, actually, what I think is going to happen is that the cars will be privately owned by individuals and they would be able to contribute their cars to these fleets. And so they would be making money for that. Essentially, their car is not just going to provide them transportation, it's going to also work for them in a sense. You let your car be part of the fleet and then it generates you certain money while you're at work, for example, when you're not using your car. And then at the end of your day, it picks you up and it's generating you X amount of dollars. <laughs> but that, I think, goes back to sort of the safety uh, concern that you were raising. It's like, well, what if someone damages your car? <laughs> Whose fault is it? Like, who, who pays for that? Is it, is it just like you take the risk? You know, how, how's that going to work? Yeah, there's a lot of, there's an underlying layer in these discussions about government regulation. And for me, the what pops into my mind mostly is the social media debate and the regulation of social media, because that's the most recent example of, of government regulation that, that I can think of. And we had a podcast the other day about it, so I suppose it's at the top of my mind. I the government has not shown that they are great at developing and responding to these new challenges. Now, there's you could argue that there is a difference between the government doing something with social media and social media is not life-changing, or at least it's not seen that way compared to transportation, which is. I suppose there is that is true. That is, that is a, an interesting uh, debate there. But on the flip side as well, there would be a lot of lobbying by such companies. If a company controls a transportation within a city, that company has a lot of power. So the government is not likely to take poor action again or to penalize them very harshly because what are you going to do against them? Like, are you not going to have transportation within a city? It's like within a day, your city will be, will be gone. So I think one thing for certain is that if, if these autonomous vehicles do become reality and become mass spread, they would have a tectonic shift. There will be a tectonic shift in, in terms of transportation we use. I mean, it's a huge, huge impact. Uh, it will affect likely the public versus private choices. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens with, uh, you know, like when you, you keep saying these companies, um, and, I, and I'm just really thinking about that, like who will be those companies? Like would the car companies, that the sort of the car manufacturers, the OEMs, actually have their own fleets, or would it be, you know, another third party buys the cars from them and manages the fleets, or or is it going to be a distributed model, where just the the car companies are essentially maintaining that network, but no one really owns it, and it's just the individual car own car owners are kind of like the players in it. It's very interesting how that's gonna play out. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would probably say it's third parties because the equivalent I would see with car companies at the moment would be uh, taxi companies or Uber or Lyft. Like those are not necessarily run by car manufacturers, they're third parties. And I imagine that kind of balance would be retained. I mean, that could be. I think the odd one is Tesla because they tend to want to control the whole thing. Like they have their own insurance. They have their own dealerships. They make the cars. They have their stations, charging stations, and so for their electric vehicles. And so it's it's interesting. Like I almost feel like we could see mostly what you're describing of a third party company, kind of that just manages fleets, take over. But in the case of certain companies that are really like controlling the whole thing, I think you might see them also 
run their own networks. I suppose that's the Apple versus Microsoft kind of debate, isn't it? Like Apple control all aspects of production, whereas Microsoft sell the software to to manufacturers. Yeah, absolutely. There's also other concerns that I've I've seen, especially related. There seems to be a lot of safety concerns uh, that is that are debated about. I suppose which makes sense, really, because that's one of the main selling points. And beyond, obviously, the pros in this area in the area of safety are fewer human errors. It's said that about ninety four percent of crashes are due to human error, and I've seen that in several different sources. Uh, you can. It's very you, that information is readily available. So go go find it on your own if you want to confirm. The other aspect is traffic. You know, you'll have less traffic. You'll be a bit safer from that perspective, because also you can get a car can't get mad at another driver, or a car can't get road rage, or it can't get distracted by the kids in the back. And the other thing is that companies would be very. Uh, very well incentivized to develop safe cars because if they're not safe, nobody would use them. So that that is usually, from what I've seen, that's the, usually the pro camp. That that those are their arguments. Um, whereas the anti camp has some more scenarios that they talk about, and one is, for example, forty part faulty parts or faulty software. And the example I can give when I was thinking about it was the. Boeing 737 Max 8 incidents, where you had planes, which were, Boeing is a very old company, obviously, they've been on the market forever. And you had incidents even with them the day uh, that that plane was considered faulty. And they were, it, it actually shone a light of how government agencies were not necessarily doing the best they can to maintain the safety standards of this company. So why would you think that, or why would we think that that would not happen with self-driving cars? And that, in a way, because car travel is so much more prevalent than planes, that would be a much bigger problem in that case. Where even so a think, single, sorry. Sorry, yeah. So, so the big question is, are they going to be safer than today? I mean, I think there's no debate that some people will, will get hurt, some people will die as a result of a whatever issue you want to describe with self-driving cars. Whether, whether it's a software bug or, you know, the sort of a changing conditions that the car is not used to. So you, you, that would happen. The question is, to speak on the advocacy side for the technology, yes, there will be certain lives lost. But if they are 10 times less, to pick the bull case, 10 times less than currently what we're doing, that's still a lot better. Uh, it's, still a, it's still a much better approach than, than losing so many more. I think that's kind of like the main point, like how good are they actually going to get and what sacrifice do we have to make until they get there? I think there is another debate here that is very much linked, which is the autonomous vehicles trolley problem. Let's put it like this. And the trolley problem is a philosophical problem, which says uh, there's all sorts of variants of it. Essentially, it says you have a trolley. You have control over the trolley. You can either aim it, uh, that trolley is out of control. It's heading towards five people on the track that can't move. They don't see it, for example. You could divert the trolley to on another track, but there is one person on it. Do you divert it? Which is the proper course of action? So in one case, you do nothing, five people die. In the other case, you do something, one person dies. 
And the problem here is obviously that you do nothing, you have no part in it. Whereas if you do something, you have in effect killed that one person. You have decided that their life is worth less than the other people. That's at least one way to look at it. And it's a similar way here. Uh, it's a similar question here that car manufacturers and software designers face. Let's say that you have a situation where you could have a car is out of control for whatever reason. And it has three choices. Firstly, it could go through a lot of pedestrians on a crosswalk. Secondly, it could swerve and save the driver, but kill one pedestrian on the street, on the, uh, on the sidewalk. Or third, it can swerve and kill the driver, which is the ethically appropriate way to go. Because all three cases, you're killing somebody who is not at fault. Well, it's it, nice when you don't have a driver. <laughs> then your, well, I mean, your you equation a gets a little simpler. So you have a passenger <laughs> is what I mean. Like you, That car is with somebody in it. Well, I, I don't think it's... Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate, but I, I don't think the car would necessarily be making uh, that type of a conscious choice. Um, it, it's more like when a bug happens, it just happens. No one wanted it to happen, but it was there and... We can't predict how many there's going to be or, you know, it's not like we're actually making the, the exact choice at a time. We're more like, are we trusting that this error rate is okay or, or not? Yeah. I mean, that is definitely, there's several questions and those are important beyond the just philosophical. Those are important because they may affect the way the technology is adopted and they may affect a lot of the regulation around it. Uh, and again, this goes towards public opinion and an interesting TED talk on this exact subject is by, and I'm probably going to butcher the name, but Iliad Rowan. It's a TED, TEDx talk. It's called The Social Dilemma of Driverless Cars. And if you ask people, they would say, well, the car should act in a way to minimize harm. So if you have, it should essentially either kill the one pedestrian or it should kill the one passenger in the car, if it's only one passenger. The, however, if you ask those same people, are you willing to, are you going to buy this car? Are you going to ride in this car? And the majority of people said, no way. So when it comes to you, you want to be kept safe. You, you're getting in that car with a presumption that you are going to be safe or safer at least. On the flip side, you want that car to not hit other people. And there is this uh, conflict of interest where the majority of people don't want to get in a car that might kill them purposefully. On the other side, they want to act on reduction of harm to, to the majority of people. And those two points are sometimes contradictory. This this um, The trolley problem as to how it's applied to autonomous vehicles, I think would be very interesting in terms of how regulation turns out and how adoption turns out. Because if you say to somebody look, we're getting these cars, or regardless if you own it or you don't own it, and this car may just decide to kill you if it thinks that it, it won't endanger other people, how many people are going to get in that? How many people are going to give their money for that service? Yeah, that's kind of a fascinating uh, <laughs> dilemma there. Um, are you more likely to buy a car that uh, would prefer killing other people than yourself? <laughs> Um, I think it, 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 what it does is it uh, a little bit anthropomorphizes autonomous vehicles. Uh, it it kind of makes them um, seem like humans, which I think is a, in general, it's a grand simplification of them. 
they're not going to have something like, oh, there's a you know 80% chance of killing someone if I go left or 30% chance of killing someone if I go right. So I'm going to go right. I think that's very, very simplistic. The car would always do um, a certain, you know, obviously safety maneuver with the highest chance of, of not killing anyone. I think that's probably the route it's going to take. Probably all cases. But it's not going to be so simplified like, oh, I go here, I kill someone. And I like the car wouldn't know if it's going to actually kill someone or not. Uh, it's not. <laughs> I don't know if I can explain this, but the, the car doesn't necessarily think about life and death. Like it's a, it's a robot. It's not. It doesn't think about that. It, it, it will avoid collisions, um, but it will try to avoid any kind of collision. So it would probably take the route that that has the highest chance of not causing anyone uh, any harm, and otherwise probably kind of stuff, do something like hit brakes and kind of like abort any kind of a movement. We can talk about iRobot in a little bit because that's very much plays into that movie and the premise of that movie. Right, but I think. The point here is more, obviously, this is an observed situation, right? The trolley problem, as I described it, it's not going to happen exactly that way. But the point below it is you will not have a choice. If you were driving the car and you were to make the same decision, you could make the choice to either kill yourself or likely kill yourself or kill somebody else or go through the pedestrians. That is your choice. Oh, so you might have it, right? You might be able to override what the car is doing. Possibly. Yeah, I mean, that could be one of the answers. But I think here also it has other aspects because you essentially do not have a choice. Your life is determined by an algorithm. And I think a lot of people will have a problem with that. Because even if it was another person, I think it would be different. But because it's, it's, it's a cold algorithm, people would have issues. Yeah, I think you're right. I think even if uh, there, there's something some people are discussing about where even if you have a car that's twice as safe as, as humans are, probably it won't work. It won't be ad- adopted. It has to be something like an, of the magnitude of 10x. It needs to make you feel way safer if it's gonna for you to trust a robot than to trust another human. It's there's just also, human nature. Yeah, there's also an aspect here which assumes that we're all scared of getting in our cars. And I don't think that that is the case. Like I get in a car on a daily basis, whether I drive or my fiance drives. And I don't think that you obviously drive safely, you drive carefully, but there is no fear of getting in that car as to, oh my God, we're putting our lives on the line. Even though- no, even- I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think this, I don't agree. So I, I didn't have any assumption about you being afraid to get in your car. Uh, the assumption is that you're afraid of getting in your car that's controlled by a robot. I well, think that's, that's very of, different. Yeah, that's sort of what I meant is that they're talking, what you just said was, uh, you know, it 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 uh, can't be twice as safe. It needs to be 10 times as safe so that people getting in it think that they are much safer than they are if they're driving it themselves. And I'm saying that assumes that statement in itself. Uh, assumes that people are afraid of getting in their own car and driving themselves, which I think is already an incorrect statement. So people, I think, would be a lot less likely to get in a car in general if they do not have control, at least at this time. Well, I mean, I'm not saying... I think you're taking my my phrase and putting it into kind of an extreme. Uh, I'm not saying people are afraid for their lives every time they get into a car, but people read the statistics, right? People know that there is a chance 
uh, that something bad was going to happen every time they get into their car. And so when they're presented with a, with this new, uh, I'm imagining it as this new, much safer car, I think a lot of people would want that. I mean, people are buying safer cars all the time, right? That's kind of like one of the value propositions of SUVs, for example. And that's one of the reasons I think SUVs have been completely killing it in the market lately yeah. is because they're much safer. We can talk about that in another podcast. but Sure, but uh, safety is a factor, absolutely, in cars. I mean, that's why we have so much regulation. And that's why we have so much uh, innovation in safety. Like, people well, care about safety as a absolute, factor. No, no, absolutely. That's not to say that, that they don't. My point is more that people would feel safer if they were driving themselves rather than giving up any control, at least at the moment. Even if they write the statistics, because I think that kind of fear is not necessarily rational. And we don't necessarily operate on rational basis. We have internal biases, for example, something that is negative and uh, you're going to have a story which is, oh, a safe driving car went out of control when it killed all four passengers and people are going to go crazy and they're going to not want to get in a self-driving car, even if the statistics is, well, on average, self-driving cars are 10 times more, uh, are 10 times safer. Well, that, that was the exact point I was making, right? They need to be so much safer. There needs to be so little cases to convince them exactly because of that bias, exactly because of that problem. Even if it's twice as safe, which is a huge number, right? Cutting all the death by cars yeah. in a half, that's a huge value for society. That won't be enough. That's yeah. what I'm saying. There needs to be something huge for them to actually make the switch. Yeah. You're essentially saving even half, even twice as safe, you're essentially saving 600,000 people. Yeah, and I think part of it is kind of like as generations change, uh, younger people will be more comfortable with it. You know, if you're already used to driving for like 40 years, I don't know if you'll ever be comfortable with that. You know, some people would be, obviously, some ex people in the extremes would be, but I think progressively younger people would be more used to the autonomous cars if they're introduced to it as kids, if they're sort of brainwashed into it, like with, with all things. Yeah, okay. Let's have a brief intermission for a few right. seconds, for a few minutes. As an intermission, I suppose we can talk about our beers or the beers we're having and give it a bit of a break. Maybe we're not, we're not having. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> You're really slacking off here. I'm I'm carrying the whole beer debate. Man, it's a health thing. Don't discriminate me. <laughs> it's a health issue. I my doctor doesn't allow me to drink really right now, which uh, yeah. Hopefully I'll get back to it soon. Uh, I think I will. But uh, yeah, right now I'm no no alcohol and no caffeine. It's like I have nothing left in life. Yeah, yeah, that is exactly what it is like. It's terrible. I'm drinking decaf five times a day because there's nothing else I can drink besides water. <laughs> and, and decaf really is not great usually. Like taste-wise, I really hate it. So I found one that's pretty good, but I had to look for it pretty badly. Like there were. All the coffee I was drinking, and I'm pretty obsessed with coffee as well. Like all the coffee I was drinking, like the decaf sucked. So I had to find a specific decaf brand that was like pretty good. But yeah, it's pretty hard. Yeah. At the moment, okay, I'll, I'll have to have like two, three pints of podcast now to just carry the whole thing. That's yes. what's going to happen. Someone needs to carry the weight of the podcast. It's on your shoulders. What are you having? Okay. I am at the moment, I'm having. I went yesterday, especially to this one place to get this nice craft beer. I went to a brewery, one of the better breweries, I think, in Boston or around Boston because it isn't actually in Boston. Uh, and it's called Barrowhouse Z. Their specialty is that 
they put a lot of their beers in barrels, hence barrel house. And at the moment, I'm having a milk porter. So a porter, for those of you who don't know, is slightly lighter than a stout. And it's also considered a winter beer. There's a milk porter, which is aged in a... I think it's a wine can. It's aged in a barrel. I'm not sure, though. I, I forget what exact barrel it is. And it's pretty interesting. It has a lot of... Similarly to stouts, porters tend to have a lot of coffee notes, dark chocolate notes. And this one has more dark chocolate. It's pretty sweet. It's called Swear Jar. Swear Jar. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not a big porter guy, but there could be some good porters. I'm, I certainly don't like sweet stuff. That's like my my thing. I well, don't like sweet not, drinks. Porters are typically not sweet. I mean, as in as far as beers go, they're I suppose they're on the sweeter end, but they're not really strongly sweet. Yeah, I mean, they don't have stouts. I'm more of a stout than porter because porter is kind of halfway for me. But as far as porters goes, this is pretty nice. So how would you rate it out of a 10? <laughs> I would say about seven and a half out of 10. For right. a porter, that's pretty good. All right, not bad, seven and a half. Yeah. I, just as a reference point, I would rate uh, most laggers as about a three. Because I'm not, I'm not a lager guy. So, lager is nice, man. Lager is, I mean, I wouldn't call it craft beer. It's almost like a lager. It's just like a nice drink when it's uh, hot outside. <laughs> it's just, I like it, but it's in a different category to me than like when I think of a craft beer. I'd never imagine a lager. Yeah, yeah. Especially here, what I'm noticing is that in the U.S., a lot of craft beers are IPA, like that kind of temp. I love IPAs. I'm the IPA guy in this podcast, <laughs> everybody. I pretty much only drink IPAs or, or like a lager. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very much dependent on on my mood. Like I have some years that I do IPAs or some months. Some months I do stouts, some months I do sours. Um, there's actually some very interesting, in terms of variety of beer and variety of taste, I think sours are definitely the most, the, the broadest variety because you can have some which almost take, taste like wine well sort of like beery wine let's put it it doesn't sound very appealing but i really enjoy it as a taste and you, ha- <laughs> you can have some that are very very mild and, I, and you can you have also so many additives that you can have in a sour so sours are a very special thing as well i don't know if i've ever had one but it sounds disgusting, but maybe I'll try it. <laughs> it's well, daring at the same time. You have to get some, yeah, sours are one of those things that can be very hit and miss. And it depends on your, if you're awaiting, if you're used to lagers and you try a sour, you're going to, it's very different. Even to stouts, it's very different in terms of taste. Well, maybe in the next podcast, we'll... Uh have some sours or maybe not we'll at see. some point <laughs> at some point <laughs> for uh for a maybe milestone episode we could get a few beers and do a beer tasting <laughs> sure thing okay so during now let's get back let's back let's get back on the road yeah during our break you were talking about or before our little break you were talking about kids and how they're first adopters of this kind of technology right uh, yeah, I mean, I was. Uh, it kind of goes back to the whole thing of, 
you know, really like when you're just coming into the world, you're just open to it. And whatever you see it tends to stick as to the way things are. Uh, so naturally, if you're older, if you have something else in your mind that's already stuck to you, then it will be hard to get to new things. So I think it's applicable to self-driving cars in terms of trusting them. But I think another aspect that we're seeing a lot in society with with kids these days, or maybe kind of teenagers, is you know they're very comfortable with sharing their data. Now, a lot of adults are also comfortable with sharing their data. Some of us don't understand what we're sharing, but that's a whole other debate. <laughs> um, but essentially, I think for self-driving cars, there is this aspect of data and privacy as well, because the cars have, you know, a number of sensors and they have a number of uh, cameras. And it's pretty much a consensus that vision uh, backed by cameras will be in every self-driving cars. That's the one thing that, you know, all of them have. And so if they have these amazing cameras and they capture everything around them and they can, they're so good that the car can actually drive itself. And, and of course, in order to get good, all that data gets sent to the cloud and it gets fed into the machine learning algorithms, then that kind of opens up a debate for, for data. Um, are, are these cars allowed to just take video of everyone and everything? Like, can you opt out of the self-driving cars taking your data as a, maybe as a pedestrian? Can I mark myself as like non-data sharing and maybe the, the car talks to my phone and then <laughs> doesn't, doesn't send data with me. Is there going to be something around that control? Because I think it's it's kind of a privacy problem, right? If, if these companies that control that that data just collect it unlimitedly with no regulation whatsoever, then you could see huge privacy implications of them just collecting everyone's data. Yeah, this is an aspect that I haven't, I had not considered, and I think there is two aspect, two levels to it. And the first one is the debate about you as a passenger. So let's say that you buy your own self-driving car. Well, obviously you would nowadays need patches to the software, you would need improvements, etc. And is that car, then is it that you own the car so you can say, okay, I don't want any video in here at all. And you can turn it off. And, and do you own as an extension of this, even if there is video from the car, from inside of the car, um, would that video be owned by you or by the company? And this is the almost the Android versus Apple debate at the moment with mobile phones. And the second level is what you talked about is, okay, you're a pedestrian and who has access to that information? Because you're right, there is, and this is the debate that goes around for AR at the moment is you go around and you collect a lot of information for a company and can that company then provide that information, for example, to law enforcement? And they can maybe use face recognition software and they can say oh this is that guy this is this guy you know when you say ar you mean augmented reality headsets basically so people yeah, have yes. cameras to detect as they walk by mm -hmm. yeah so yeah ar augmented reality and there one of the debates is well you could if you have somebody walking around with a with ar gear on them one of the aspects that can be done is that the data can be facial recognition can be used to identify the people around you whether it be as a main function that you uh, you want to do, let's say you're in law enforcement, or as a secondary function that that they you're doing something else, and that data is sent and and after the fact, it's it's processed that way, and it definitely raises a lot of questions because there is in the EU, for example, there is the right to be forgotten, so you can opt out of a lot of these search engines to they can remove you uh from from their algorithms 
and that's a sticking point for the EU. And if you have self-driving cars that send, that have this continual video feed all over the city, what would the consequence of that be? It's definitely a big thing to consider because they can't these these cars will not be able to operate without the cameras. And so it, it's almost like a forced we'll have to force people to now we can we can definitely limit of, of you know what video feeds they send and how, but it's not something that will easily be switched off because the cars themselves will have to have the cameras on one way or another in order to actually be able to drive. So it's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, who knows how they're going to solve it. Yeah, they'll have to be, and there might be, I think the phone discussion at the moment could be a good guiding, uh, good guide for this, where you have the two models competing with each other and Apple is more the privacy company, you own your own data, it's encrypted on your phone. Whereas Android is more, it's cheaper devices, but uh, we protect your data. Uh, they don't necessarily protect your data, I mean. And there could be a price aspect to it where you have the cheaper rides, which also sell the data versus the more expensive uh, exclusive rides, which don't, which is the sort of the way with Apple and, and Android at the moment. Yeah, you could definitely imagine these, these cars becoming a, data collecting vehicles no pun intended uh to to just yeah to to create a brand new business model of sort of continuing that societal trend of uh collecting your data and and selling it you you can definitely see certain technology i mean obviously it's even the same companies right google has way more which is one of the leading companies in self driving technology their whole business model around google is is around data and yeah. so they, you could definitely imagine them collecting that data, using that as an opportunity almost, just for the data collection piece of it. This can segue into a point that I wanted to make and that I thought while researching for this, which is to do with societal certification. So the further differentiation between classes or income classes in society. And there's two schools of thought about autonomous vehicles in this case. And one school says, well, autonomous vehicles would help bridge that gap because people who did not have easy access to transportation would get better access. But on the flip side, my personal opinion is that it would actually make things worse because, and there's a few points that I, I thought about. First off, if you have autonomous vehicles, just by the, the amount of technology and software and continual support that would need to go into them, as compared to a regular car now. And I don't mean the cars that already have a lot of automation and software in them, but more just a car that you drive, regular old car. And that would increase the price. So for an individual, it would become more difficult to get a car. And the, the other aspect is that are any sharing services, any um, of those programs would probably have levels to them in terms of how much you pay. And the lower service, the lower you pay as a, as a customer, you probably have more of your data collected. You would probably have a worse service. So for example, maybe the car isn't clean regularly or you have to share with more people. So there's various, um, the car is worse quality in general, older maybe, or fewer patches or something like that. So while it could help in some areas, I think in other areas, it could make things a lot worse. How do you feel about, about that? 
I don't think it's going to provide a, a drastic change to income inequality. Uh, I think I do see it as a, as a potential positive. Um, in you know one of the areas I, I kind of mentioned, I, w- I, was, I worked on ride sharing for underserved communities in the Detroit area. Um, I have a little bit of experience in that. And one of the main struggle that they had there is uh, as we were considering working with a government grant or uh, NSF grant and trying to see how potential like government could intervene and kind of like make transportation more affordable uh, because transportation is a huge pain point there. A lot of people can't get to jobs, even though there are available jobs. They don't have cars, so they, they can't just get to those jobs. We were exploring ride sharing and how that can change uh, their lives. But uh, part of the issue that we discovered was that the drivers are the problem. Th- there's a huge problem with lack of drivers in areas that might be more dangerous or they could be, you know, unequal economically. And so I think if you eliminate the driver problem, if the government has to only buy cars, for example, uh, it doesn't have to be the government, but in this case, it was in our research. And so it, that actually makes, I think, potentially the price point, the, the, the check that they have to write a lot smaller because you can't really hire these drivers and bring them from somewhere else. And if they don't want to already be there, that's actually not working already. We're seeing that. So I think in that kind of like limited instance, I think providing transportation to regions where ride sharing is not actually even happening and Uber type of things is not happening or Lyft, I think that could be that could be a good thing. But do I see it as in general like a huge change in terms of uh, inequality? I don't think so. Uh, partially for those things that you, reasons that you already mentioned. I think there's already levels. For example, Tesla, you pay extra for the advanced autopilot or whatever they call their feature for sort of the more advanced features. So I think, yeah, you'll definitely see that. I mean, the more money you have, the more advanced your car is going to be, the fancier it's going to be. So, yeah, that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Um, the argument here would as well be uh, for underserved communities, which is what you stated, and I was thinking about that as well. And that could, yes, it could help from the point of view that people who live in such areas can go get from point A to point B. But on the flip side, having this opportunity, if you have a situation where public transport goes away, let's say the bus goes away, and you just have these self-driving pods, let's call them that at the moment, the kind of service you would get from those pods may be first off inferior, and second off, there could be a lot of other things that you don't necessarily know about, which is, uh, we talked about data collection, uh, possibly, again, older vehicles or, or a lower service in general, just because you're in that area and your plan is potentially cheaper. And would we regulate against that, or is that acceptable? Essentially, you don't have a choice. You have to go to work to be able to live, at least at the moment. So part and of the problem currently with buses is that there's no buses in certain areas. Um, it, it might, especially when we big, live in big cities, it might seem like there's public transportation everywhere, but that's not the case. Particularly in the areas that I worked in uh, around Detroit, there's a lot of issues with public transportation, A, not existing, and B, not existing in, in certain hours. Uh, there are plenty of jobs that are also happening at night, actually, that are vacant vacant excuse me they're not being filled by people because uh, we we interviewed people and they're telling us they can't go to work because there's no bus at that time and so you could solve some part of that problem for sure like in the cases where you don't have public transportation already having a smaller you know individual sort of 
you know, four people vehicles, five people vehicles um, are much easier to distribute into various spots because they're just more mobile. They're not in a fixed route because in order to have a fixed route, you have to have certain demand on that exact route. That's where the buses are. Well, and, the, and also having them in awkward hours. I think that's a big deal as well. Well, the question here would be, because in both cases we're talking about, at least in the example you gave, we're talking about government money going to one alternative or the other. So the argument would be, well, why not? Is it is the money better spent going towards the autonomous vehicle route? Or maybe you can provide, for example, smaller buses. You could have a driver there for a vehicle which has five or six seats that goes through lesser drove, uh, lesser trafficked areas or at worse times, which can uh, which could solve that problem as well. Or another thing that you could have is, for example, an app where you press a few buttons and you can call such a vehicle to your location, which is not self-driving. And that would alleviate a lot of the safety concerns as in it's, it's dark, it's night, few people around, obviously that presents some safety challenges if there is nobody in authority around to, to help protect you. Maybe. Well, so there's already such service, right? Uber and Lyft. But I was trying to explain, there is, it's not working right now. We see that Uber and Lyft have not had such penetration in these communities. And arguably, they're needed even more in these communities. And the reason is because part of the issue, one of the biggest problems that we discovered and that we read in other papers and other uh, you know, heard from people is that there's not enough drivers. There's just no drivers that want to drive in those hours in those areas. And that's the problem that ride sharing companies are having. Because I think what you're suggesting is basically like ride sharing. It already exists and it doesn't well, work. Yes, but I'm more talking about government ride sharing. So you have somebody who is employed by the city, for example, they operate within that area. And then they can be provided yeah. with, for example, if they feel unsafe, they can be provided with protection. Yes, I mean, so we that, that's actually what the base of our research was, um, looking into that. Can, can that possibly happen? That's exactly what the, the research question was. And can can the government fund ride-sharing in a way that helps that community? And it's a complicated topic. Uh, I'm not sure, I don't think we can cover it here. There's many aspects to the, the algorithms themselves as well, of how rides get distributed to people. That have that play in that, but um, it, it's still expensive. There's challenges to it, and I think there's some potential for the self-driving cars being more efficient at that. But it all depends on how the whole networks run and how the algorithms work of how you just get your car and where it goes first. You know, I mean, it's not a, it's not a simple answer. Yeah, no, I I get it. It's a very interesting topic. Um, a last one that I want to talk about safety before we continue on is. Is just a small case scenario where, which was presented in one of the talks I, uh, or one of the debates I listened to that I hadn't thought about and I thought it's pretty interesting, which is if part of the code of the algorithm of that program that rides the, that drives the car is self-driving cars can under no circumstance intentionally run over people, which makes sense, right? Then can you have a, a, a situation where, let's say you've been out, you've had a few drinks, and then you get in your self-driving car and you drive down the road and smaller road the car decides to take and somebody just steps in front. Like you have two people in front, two people behind the car and effectively you are now trapped. And that presents a significant physical risk because those people may want to come in and harm you in some way or rob you or steal the car or 
And I think that is a very tricky situation because do you then have a button, for example, to override and say, okay, no, go, 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 run that person over. And then are you liable for murder, for example? So there are a lot of questions around there um, about those kinds of decisions that I think need to be thought about and definitely are interesting food for thought anyway. And for sure, yeah. It really made me think even also of another tangent to it or another <laughs> aspect of it where these cars actually are recording video even when they're stopped. And so this has happened with Tesla cars where someone commits a crime uh, on a parking lot or <laughs> in front of a store and actually there's footage from from the cars, from the Tesla cars. And that person can then be convicted because of because of that footage. <laughs> so it's an interesting aspect to kind of like like those people that are burglars or not burglars but like essentially if, if they're going to commit a crime like maybe like you described they're actually being recorded immediately so they are they even likely to do that knowing that they're being recorded and the data is being sent already i mean that's pretty simple because all you have to do is wear a motorbike helmet right just wear something that you would obstruct you being identified sure but it requires actual planning and you know you would have to really set out to do that it's i think it removes an element of them seeing someone randomly in a dirt road and going after them i mean yeah sure but i don't i'm not implying that they're going after that person specifically but you can just sit in a in a good location if let's say that you own that car you can sit in a good location and then you see a single car coming out you're just waiting the whole night and then you do that. Like you can send up these. Like, there's bad right. actors. You could set up. But then, situation. but then you you should, I guess. You know, I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but I'm not sure what percent. I'm just thinking out loud here. What percent of crime is so planned like that? I'm not saying they're going after you specifically, but they have to be going after a crime specifically, right? They are waiting for cars to come out of their motorcycle helmets on, versus them just drinking or whatever. Then when they see a car, they have an idea of going there and doing something. Like how much of it is just serendipitous like that versus more planned <laughs> ambush? I'm not sure what that percentage is. It just made me think about that. Well, I'm sure that it probably varies by place and location. I, yeah, um, sure. But I think a good rule of thumb in the case in this case would be if you if you create a situation where that would be a possible something that you can do and you don't resolve it, you'll definitely see it happening. Yeah, I mean, it's like security cameras, right? It's like security cameras in a bank or something like that. It would probably prevent certain amount of crime, knowing that there's a security camera. I think a lot of people would be discouraged from committing crime. That's why we have those security cameras. So it's like having a security camera on your car. But that doesn't mean it's going to stop all crime. There's still crime that happens despite security cameras. Yeah, no, for sure. But the problem here is, again, I think, the lack of control, where all you would need to do to incapacitate a car like this would be to stand in front of it. All you would need to do is have like three or four people to stand in front and behind the car, and that car can now not move. You as a person are trapped within that vehicle, and that vehicle is not moving. And well, I that's think pretty that... much also similar to with regular car, right? I mean, you could well, move, but then you would hit someone. So you will yeah, likely but, hurt them very badly. Yeah, but you have, then you can say, well, there were five people. There were, I was in immediate danger doing, I, I had to do it. 
I don't think that this is a common way to steal a car at the moment, at least in a lot of places, because you have the expectation that somebody would run over you rather than if you start banging on their windows, right? Well, actually, I, I disagree. I think, well, I don't know what percentage of cars stealing the car specifically, but there's a ton of robberies that are happening at, at like stoplights. That's like a very common way to get robbed. You stop your car at a stoplight and then, then someone runs from somewhere and they could break your window, but but that's an opportunity for you where you're stopped. So it's actually a very common way, even with today's cars. Sure, you can theoretically drive forward, but if, if there's someone in front of you, then you can't go anywhere anyways. No, yeah, that is that already exists now. You're right. Yeah. And I actually know somebody, and I'm not going to mention any details, but I know somebody who that happened to, and that person was then sort of kidnapped and then long story short the car was found it was probably taken to do something else temporarily this is a problem which exists which is likely to be made worse by by some aspects of self-driving cars it'll be interesting to see how, how it goes for sure another, another small aspect that is not as much about safety but more about practicality uh, would be if self-driving cars can run over people and people know that then are pedestrians a lot more likely to not follow the law and either jaywalk or just continue walking regardless of what traffic lights say because that they know that that car is not going anywhere so why would you stop why that would could you be no, no, yeah that's a good point i think you can also make again sort of the camera argument well but people also will be recorded at all times and so <laughs> Would they break the law if they know they're being recorded? Like, how is the police going to... Are they, is the police going to tap into that data? Or is there going to be regulation where the data is, is not actually going to be shared? And these are all questions that we'll, we'll have to deal with. Yeah, because I think jaywalking in terms of crime is not necessarily very high up there. So, I don't know. It's That is an, also an interesting question, I think. It's not necessarily... The reason I'm saying this is in one of the debates I listened to, it was basically talked about if we would need to, in the future, wall off the roads or move autonomous cars on separate roads that are in some way inaccessible to pedestrians or to other cars because of that aspect. Because people may take advantage and what are you going to do? Fine, everybody. It's an, it also has to do with how the technology is applied in the real world. There's many unknowns about it, many question marks about it. I mean, I'm sure they'll figure something out, whether it's splitting traffic in different road or or finding people. I mean, you'll have to find everybody, but you find you find enough people, and the others get discouraged really fast. I also think it's interesting the aspect of the interface of the car. As a designer, I just can't help myself. So first, when you think about the pedestrian, if a pedestrian sees that a car is driving by itself, maybe it recognizes a type of car that does that, or you know, they usually have these big sensors on the top of the car. Do you panic? Do you freak out? Are you afraid of that car? Or does the car communicate to you somehow that it sees you, that it's okay, that it knows you're there and it's not just going to run over you like you're on the sidewalk or when you're crossing the street? I think some people are experimenting with the car somehow indicating to pedestrians that um, it's it's seeing them. And it also goes the other way where it indicates to the people inside of the car what it sees. I think that's a huge aspect of the trust with the cars on the road, with these self-driving cars on the road. Like people need to 
know that the car somehow is seeing things uh, to not freak out. Uh, I've been in such cars, uh, in particular those developed by, by Uber, and they show a lot of data that they don't have to really show, um, at least those prototypes that, that I was on in, in Pittsburgh, which is actually a place that's super hard to drive in general, by the way. <laughs> the car itself showed actually data about what it sees on the street. It was explained to me that the reason for doing that is is to really give a sense of uh, safety. It's okay. I can see people. I can see the other cars. I'm not going to crash into something. <laughs> Things will be all right. And it's an interesting that we have this human aspect to us that if we can be reassured that that might help with adoption and us trusting such technologies. Well, that's a big part of what you do, right? It's it's the way of human-centric design, really. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> At some point in the podcast, I was talking about, I was saying, oh, they did not design level three of self-driving cars very well because they did not take how people react and how people are into consideration. That's exactly what I was talking about. Because sometimes I think experts, and this is true for everyone and for every field, that experts who are working on a problem don't necessarily consider how their product impacts people and how the product is really going to be used in the market. And that can present a lot of issues. It can for sure. And, and even when you, when you talk about the sort of the, the car as a product, I think one other big area there for design to solve will be, okay, you're in that car that drives itself. So what do you do? If you're in that car for six hours, that could be extremely boring. And, and there's a few aspects to this. The, the first one is it's actually not easy to, to read on a car. You know, the car moves quite a lot. And so reading, you can maybe feel sick. You can feel nausea after reading for a bit in the car. It's not like a train or something like that. That is much more stable. And, and buses are a little better depending on the bus. But so there's certain problems to be solved there. Like how do we make long rides in vehicles where, where you're a passenger more pleasant? Like do we entertain people? But how do we entertain them in a way that we don't get them dizzy? Do we enable productivity? Again, how does that work? Some people are talking about certain virtual reality stabilizers, like you put in a headset and that sort of adjusts your world algorithmically to match with like what the car is doing. And that uh, is arguing that it's still in research papers phase basically academically, but essentially trying to decrease nausea from cars. So that's a whole nother industry on top of that industry that's going to have to be created of how do we entertain people? How do we enable them to be productive when they're in their vehicles? Yeah, as somebody who gets sick in cars, I get motion sick pretty easily. Well, I used to. I'm okay sort of now. But as a child, I sometimes had a problem being in a car for 100 kilometers. Like I would get very nauseous. Uh, And buses in some cases are even worse because sometimes in buses you have these weird smells that that make things a whole lot worse. But that, that is definitely a consideration for me whenever I ride a car for a long time. Uh, I think here is another place where business models would come into play because whether it be your car or another car, you could think about, I think planes are a similar, are a good place to look at where you have some companies which are more expensive, which have an extensive movie library and music library, and they give you earphones, et cetera, versus some of the cheaper companies which don't. And they say, well, we have Wi-Fi. You can pay $5 for a year or for an hour of Wi-Fi for example, and you can have your own tablet. And I think 
probably that is a similar model to what we would see in self-driving cars, especially with FireFG being very much available. I think that, that is something that we could see. I think so too. I think in general, entertainment will be a huge aspect to being in self-driving cars because, yeah, like you gave the example, it's very similar to the airplane where you're not actually driving the or flying the airplane. You're not driving the car, so you're bored. Like you either want to be productive or you want to sleep or you want to be entertained. That's generally what uh, a lot of people would want a lot of the time. And so we need to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. I think that we're pretty much done, are we? I think we are. Well, on that note, then, we shall conclude and play the outro. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate us, like, and share. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are at Pine Talks. From the whole Pine Talks team, we hope you have an awesome day.